This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Kings, chapter 18. 2 Kings, we're going to be looking at chapters, mostly chapters 18 and 19 uh, today. Context, let's not forget that. We can stare at the tree and forget what the forest looks like. Let's back up, take a look at the forest again. Human beings have been created to multiply. There are to be numerous people living in this world. God created them to live in a special place where His presence dwelled among them personally. And He created them to walk with Him in holiness and obedience. That was God's vision and mission for this world and that in Eden actually anticipates the new heavens and the new earth. Everything that God had designed human beings to be in Eden is where history is moving once again. But back in Eden, Adam and Eve lost their reverence for God's word. They disobeyed. They were cast out. And so the question since then has been, how do human beings become who God made them to be in the first place? Because there's something wrong with us. And how do human beings once again enter and live in the dwelling place of God? Those are the two driving questions that a reader's left with after finishing Genesis 3. How do we become who God created us to be? And how do we once again enter and live in God's dwelling place? Well, when Moses led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, the plan was very clear for them to take possession of Canaan, the promised land, and to bring that land into conformity with the word of the Lord. The promised land was to become the new Eden. But ever since Joshua led Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land, Israel has never known that. This community of faith has never known that. The judges' period, which follows Joshua, is appallingly repetitive with failure after failure after failure. And the period that follows the judges, the period of the kings, the story's the same. The story's the same. Now, when the initial monarchy was set up, it was a united kingdom. The kingdom was united under three kings. Saul was number one, David number two, Solomon number three. And then the kingdom split apart. Okay, just to give you a snapshot of that, take a look at this. So the kingdom split, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. They set up their own kings, and it's within that context, the prophets, whom we have dabbled with already and will continue to do so next week. Um, we'll be looking at Hosea, and then we've got Jonah. So we've got the prophets. Their ministry intertwines with the time of the kings. The prophets' ministry intertwines with the time of the kings. And their job was not primarily prognosticating the future. Their job primarily was to speak the word of God into the lives of the community of faith, whether it was the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. So you see Isaiah and Micah are examples of prophets in the southern kingdom. Amos, Hosea, Jonah, examples of prophets in the northern kingdom. And their job was to call the community of faith back to God's original vision, intent, plan from the beginning of time for this people to be unique in the world. Now, the overall trend is frustrating. It's frustrating. 
But every now and again, we are given a breath of fresh air uh, with the example of a king who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Such is the case with the king that we're going to look at today, Hezekiah. Hezekiah's life, even with its blemishes, even with its blemishes, is a portrait of a faithful life. A faithful life against all odds. A faithful life in spite of antagonistic, uh, an antagonistic environment he lived in. In verse 3 of chapter 18, we're given a summation of his life. Here's what it says. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. So Hezekiah is held in very high regard. In fact, there are only two kings of whom the text says the Lord was with him. Only two kings. The text says the Lord was with him. David and Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the second David, and we're going to ponder today four aspects to a faithful life as we look at his. Four aspects to a faithful life as we look at his. First, a faithful life roots out idolatry. Second, expects adversity. Third, waits patiently. And fourth, stumbles through lapses. A faithful life roots out idolatry, expects adversity, waits patiently, stumbles through lapses. Number one, a faithful life roots out idolatry. Take a look at verses three and four. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So Hezekiah is the first king to take the spiritual reformation of the land to this extent. Amaziah had done right in the eyes of the Lord, but not like David. He, uh, Asa had done uh, what was right as David had done, except he didn't put the high places out of business. Hezekiah, on the other hand, stands in contrast to these other two good kings in that he takes it the whole way. He removes the high places. He smashes the sacred stones. He cuts down the Asherah poles. He break, breaks the bronze snake into pieces. Now we look at that. We look at Judah's problem and, and with idolatry, and maybe we think, well, <laughs> why didn't all the kings make it their business to do what Hezekiah did? Why didn't all the kings make it their business to, to, to cut down the Asherah poles and to smash the sacred stones? Well, it's not as though Judah had converted to an entirely different religion. Judah's problem was not that obvious. It was hidden. It was syncretistic. They combined elements of the religion God instituted among them with elements of Canaanite religion. So in the last verse of chapter 17, which is the prelude to the section we're looking at, here's what it says. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. Even while they were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. This is how idolatry ordinarily works. You want to know how it works? Here's how it works. It smuggles itself into our daily personal lives or our corporate worship lives, and it begins to reproduce undetected. I was reading in a medical journal recently of how scientists are learning more about the herpes simplex 1 virus. It's the virus that causes cold sores. It's a bugger. Trust me. 
it's a bugger. Okay, you, you can't get it from shaking my hand, okay, so don't, if I kiss you, that's another problem. <laughs> the herpes simplex 1 virus invades our cells, it takes control of their machinery in order to replicate itself, all the while hiding from our immune system. Herpes simplex 1 virus has integrated itself into the human body without the body's knowledge. That's ordinarily how idolatry works. It integrates itself into the normal operations of our lives, all the while hiding from us. And that explains why it is idolatry can be allowed to continue. So one of the reasons Judah adopted this practice, one of the reasons that they were worshiping the Lord while serving their idols, is that idolatry, the pagan forms of worship that they had come into contact with in Canaan were quite appealing For example, Canaanite gods had needs that people could meet. And if you met those needs, you would get blessed for it. The system was the epitome of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's how the religious system worked. Now we think, how silly, how silly, but not so fast. Idolatry is like the herpes simplex 1 virus. It integrates itself into the normal operations of our lives, all the while hiding from us. We can blindly adopt this, I'll scratch God's back if he scratches mine approach. How do we do that? Well, think about it. Attending church on Sundays can become this kind of proposition, can't it? I'll attend church, I'll scratch God's back. Maybe down the line he'll scratch mine. If I go to church, maybe God will bless me. If I go to church, maybe my sick loved one will get better. If I go to church, maybe God will give me that promotion at work or he'll give me a great week. The moment we approach our gathering in this room or any kind of individual spiritual practice as if we are scratching God's back so he'll scratch ours, We've fallen into the same boat Judah did. We've become idolaters. And think about how subtly that can happen. Think about how subtly that can happen. But a faithful life isn't content with that. A faithful life is vigilant to spot and root out idolatry wherever it may be found. Second, faithful life expects adversity. Faithful life expects adversity. Faithful life diligently roots out idolatry. Second, faithful life expects adversity. The section of text that runs from 1817 to 1919 is comprised of Assyria's taunting and intimidation tactics and Hezekiah's response to them. Just picture it this way. Here's what, here's what Assyria is doing. In, in 1817 and 1919, Assyria is playing the role that Goliath did with the people of Israel a few books ago. Remember how Goliath would come out day after day and hurl insult after insult? He would taunt them endlessly day after day, 40 straight days. Remember that? That's what Assyria is now doing to Hezekiah and the people of Judah. They're peppering them with intimidation after intimidation, with taunt after taunt. So the question then is, knowing what we already know about Hezekiah, the question is, should this be happening to someone like him? Remember what was said about him. The text literally says, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. 
either before him or after him. There's nobody like him. He's the second David. He's awesome. He's great. He's held in the highest regard. Shouldn't that bring God's blessing rather than Assyria's presence? None of this should be happening to Hezekiah because he's been so good. Herein lies the lesson. Faith is not a prophylactic against all disasters. Faith is not a prophylactic against all disasters. It is not. You can cling to the Lord steadfastly, faithfully, and guess what? The Assyrians will still come. Opposition does not mean you've made a misstep. If our faith was a prophylactic, you know what would happen to it? It would be magic. Here, watch this. Now, you've seen this. I've seen this. It's possible for a wife to give herself earnestly to prayer, but her husband still dies of cancer, and then she never prays again. You've probably seen that. It's possible for a diligent, faithful, committed volunteer in the church to go through the tragedy of an unfaithful spouse and never set foot in church again. We can approach our spiritual disciplines as if they are our lucky rabbit's foot. 2 Kings 18 can prove a helpful corrective. It tells you that You can be a king who trusts the Lord, who obeys the Lord, who reforms the nation's worship. You can do all of this and your your enemy may still come and crush your land, deport its population, and await the moment when that other king can impale this other king's carcass on a stake outside the city wall. It's helpful to faith to know that. So maybe when you look at your life, you think you're living out the portrait of a faithful life. Maybe what's true of Hezekiah is true of you. What are your expectations? If your life is so good, if what has been said about Hezekiah can be said of you, what are your expectations? C.S. Lewis captured that vividly. He said, imagine a set of people all living in the same building. They're all in the same building. Half of them have been told it's a hotel. The other half have been told it's a prison. He says, those who think it a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable. And those who think it's a prison might decide that it's really surprisingly comfortable. So that what seems the ugly doctrine is one that comforts and strengthens you in the end. The people who try to hold an optimistic view of this world would become pessimists. The people who hold a pretty stern view become optimistic. You might be living out the portrait of a faithful life. Do you think your life is supposed to be a hotel? Living a godly, holy, faithful life is not a prophylactic against all disasters. 
God's never told us we're living in a hotel. If anything, he's given us every warning imaginable to say, you're not in a hotel, you're in a prison. Faithful life expects adversity. Third, a faithful life waits expectantly. Faithful life waits expectantly. Now, in response to all these taunts and these insinuations, these tactics, Hezekiah seeks out Isaiah, the prophet, and the king expresses his grief to the prophet. And the theme is very interesting. The theme is not primarily, look at all Assyria has done to me and my people. The theme is, look at how, how Assyria has been ridiculing God. Stunning. I'd love to probe that in more depth. We'll have to do that another time. His response to the injustice he's seen around it is not to immediately react negatively to the treatment, the ill treatment of the people, but his response is to say, look at how these people are treating God. It's very God-centric. Well, he seeks out Isaiah. Isaiah relays a word to the, of, from the Lord to him. And the message is good news. Assyria is going to return to their own land. Sennacherib, who is the Assyrian king, will be destroyed. Music to my ears. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. I can imagine Hezekiah listening to this message roll off the lips of the prophet Isaiah and saying, yes, yes, and he gets done. And the next question is, when, right? When? When's this going to happen? Well, it doesn't happen fast. <laughs> it does not happen fast. As chapter 19 unfolds, Nothing changes. Nothing changes quickly. Assyria still has Jerusalem besieged. They're still hurling insult after insult at Hezekiah and the people of Judah. Isn't so much of the Christian life lived in that spot? Right? This is why we have how long prayers. Psalm 13, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Or in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Dr. Greg Scharf, who was with us about a year ago, made this very memorable statement. He said, faith often looks like waiting. The Apostle Paul, his words cling to the promise of God, that there's a glory to be revealed in us. But in the moment, we groan inwardly as if nothing has really changed. Hezekiah, he's living in this in-between time. Isaiah has given him the promise from the Lord that Sennacherib will retreat, he'll be destroyed. But as he looks out his window, it doesn't seem as though anything's changed. He still sees the Assyrians. He still hears their taunting. You ever feel like that? You know the promises of the Lord. You can read them. You've memorized them. But as you look out your window, you don't see any sign of them approaching on the horizon. How do you live in that in-between time? You say, God, I know your promises are true, but, but I don't see the slightest hint of it. 
God's sense of timing will absolutely confound you. God's sense of timing will absolutely confound you. Let me give you an example of that from the New Testament. An example from the New Testament. There was this guy by the name of Jairus. He's a synagogue ruler. His daughter was gravely ill. And uh, he requests that Jesus come with him to see her and heal her. So Jesus agrees to go with him. But on the way, he's stopped by a woman who had been subjected to bleeding for 12 years. She had spent everything she had on medical professionals who did nothing for her but make her problems worse. She was now broke. And after Jesus um, hears this story, he stops and he's, he's um, cr- crowding around. She's pushing her way through the crowd. She reaches out, she touches him, and she's healed. Jesus stops to engage her in conversation. Okay, imagine being Jairus. Your daughter, your little girl, is on her deathbed. And Jesus has just stopped walking. And he's now engaging somebody else in a conversation. He appears to be in no hurry to get to your precious girl. So the woman with a chronic condition for 12 years is getting attention while the little girl with an acute condition is being ignored. In the middle of all this, Jairus' servants come and report to him there's no need, she's dead. If this had happened in a modern-day emergency room, Jesus would have been sued for medical malpractice. Anybody who treats the one with a 12-year chronic condition while letting the one with an acute condition die is going to be sued. But the way Jesus handles this is a profound comment about God's timing. God's sense of timing is baffling, mystifying, perplexing. But listen, his use of time is always the most loving use of time. If you try to impose your schedule onto God, you will quickly begin to question God's love for you. Remember, part of God's vision for your life is to become the kind of human being God created us to be in the first place. When He made Adam and Eve, His design was for them to trust Him even when there was no explanation. A faithful life waits. It waits. But it waits expectantly. Fourth, a faithful life stumbles through lapses. Now we get through these first three reflections and we think to ourselves, wow, Hezekiah is kind of a rock star here. Well, nothing phases this guy. I mean, if that's what a faithful life looks like, then, then I'm already eliminated. I'm out. But that's not how Hezekiah's reign as king began. Believe it or not, he stumbled out of the gate. Right out of the gate, he stumbled. Here's what we read. Verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. And I will pay whatever you demand of me. 
The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now look, what Hezekiah faced here is no walk in the park. I mean, his back was against the wall. Assyria has already taken out the northern kingdom. Keep that in mind. Assyria invaded and conquered the northern kingdom and hauled them off into exile. They were the world's number one superpower at the time. So this is not an easy problem to deal with. But in the face of Assyria's onslaught and Sennacherib's manipulative posturing, Hezekiah drains the temple and royal treasuries and he even strips the gold overlaid on the temple doors and he gives it all to Assyria. First and second kings always views the draining of temple treasuries in a negative way. Always. So what Hezekiah did here was not a good thing. It's not really what we would have expected from someone who is spoken of so highly. So we're faced with a dilemma. How can this God-truster, this Yahweh-clinger, this commandment-keeper become such a glob of jello? There's the encouragement. There is no conflict between an overall trend of faith that nevertheless stumbles through lapses of faith. There is no conflict, no conflict between an overall trend of faith that nevertheless stumbles through lapses of faith. Sometimes our trust in the Lord wobbles a bit. But it's still possible for the overall portrait of your life to be summed up as Hezekiah's was. The summation statement, in spite of this lapse, is still true. The summation statement was, he did right in the eyes of the Lord. There is no conflict between an overall trend of faith that nevertheless stumbles through lapses of faith. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. The portrait of a faithful life is not flawless. It's possible for you to stumble through lapses of faith, but in the end, hear God say of you, well done, good and faithful servant. Chinese pastor by the name of Wan Ming Dao was a highly respected pastor of the Christian's Tabernacle in Peking, China. Soon after coming to power in 1949, the communists carted Wang and his wife off to prison where they sentenced him to 15 years. In his last sermon, in his last message to his congregation, this is what he said. We shall make whatever sacrifice is required of us in being faithful to God, regardless of how others may twist the truth and slander us, we, because of our faith, shall remain steadfast. That was his last declaration to his congregation. 
Wang was 55 years old. And as you can imagine, his imprisonment was brutal. His captors knew what a catch they had. And they knew that if they could get him to flip, they could devastate Christianity throughout China. So they barraged him. The problem was not just physical abuse, it was psychological warfare. They hit him with bribes, with threats, with insinuations. One of the political elites within the Chinese communist government even got involved with this by pressing doubts into him about the existence of God day after day after day. Finally, Pastor Wang appealed for clemency on the basis of his willingness to cooperate. And after hearing of his wife's plummeting health, he wrote all that was asked of him, even agreeing to join a branch of the communist government. So in 1956, he was released from prison, and yet he was not free. His conscience held him captive. He'd never lacked integrity before, but now in his world he had given in. He wandered the streets near his home muttering to himself, I am Peter, I am Peter, I am Peter. His conscience would not allow him to fully cooperate. And so, he and his wife eventually reported to the authorities and told them his statements were false. He was promptly thrown back into prison and sentenced for life where he spent the rest of his life. But the Lord ministered to him there and helped him to endure to the end. None of us can throw stones at what Wang endured. And yet it is true that people of great courage and strong faith can crumble. But those moments of crumbling do not mean you've lived an unfaithful life. We can stumble through lapses of faith and still hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And why is that possible? Because we have a Savior who didn't crumble. We have a Savior who went to the cross and never stumbled through a lapse of faith. We have a Savior who paid the full price for every lapse of faith we have already stumbled through. We have a Savior who is eager to forgive us for our lapses of faith. We have a Savior whose perfect life, absent of any lapse of faith, is given to you as a gift. See, the portrait of a faithful life is seen in high definition in the life of Christ. Treasure Him. Follow Him. Run to Him. And you too will one day hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant.
Let's pray. Jesus, you lived, died, rose again to transform your people into the kind of people who reflect the Father's design and intent at creation. Be people who revere your word, who walk with you in faithful obedience, and who are a unique community in the world. I know it's the heart's cry of many in this room to live a faithful life. Help us with that. Give us eyes to see where idolatry has covertly encroached in our normal operations. Give us the strength to confess that, to root it out. Grant us the perspective that expects adversity and isn't shocked when it happens. Jesus, allow us to wait upon you and not impose our sense of timing on you. Jesus, when we fall short, give us the courage to come to you and confess our sin and receive the promise of forgiveness. Thank you for being our perfect Savior. We look to you now. In your name we pray these things. Amen.